Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. The hardest person I've ever had to forgive has been myself. Me as a dad, my failures and mistakes as a parent, Tony Dungy, the great NFL coach, said the same thing when his 18-year-old son hung himself. Guilt tortured him because at Thanksgiving, when his son left to go back to college, he didn't get up and hug him. He just waved from the dinner table. And a few weeks later, his son was dead. And Dungy was tortured with guilt. In a fascinating book, the psychologist Nero Rossi describes how he asked thousands of people over a 12-year period, what's your greatest regret? And by a mile, the greatest regret that people shared was their regrets of their mistakes and failures as a mother or father. People wish they could turn the clock back and do some things over. James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, surveyed 25,000 parents. And he found that far and away, the greatest, the biggest emotion that these parents had universally was guilt. Guilty regrets. He concluded, there is not a parent alive, and I quote, who does not spend time in the land of regrets. So what's your biggest regret in life? What have you not forgiven yourself of? And the evidence for that is that when you think about it, you still feel guilty. And maybe it's an affair that you had, or a bad investment or a breakup in a relationship, or that you didn't take better care of yourself and now your health isn't so good. Sometimes the hardest person in the world to forgive is ourself. John was born on Christmas Eve. Not the best in family planning, but I didn't care. I was the happiest man alive because I had a son. And so immediately, I went out and bought him a baseball glove and bat, a football, a gasoline engine, remote-controlled plane, a little toy train, things that he wouldn't use for quite a while or couldn't play with, and Susie just laughed. But I had fabulous plans to do manly things with my son. And then two years later, Jenny was born, And life could not be better for us. When John was five, Susie went to pick him up at preschool one day, and his preschool teacher was frazzled. And she said with not a little emotion, I tell the class to sit down, and John stands up. I tell the class to stand up, and John sits down. I don't know what to do with that boy. And when Susie told me this later at dinner, I just laughed. 
I said, he's just an independent spirit. She didn't laugh. <laughs> she was worried. He might be difficult to parent, but I wasn't worried. Because you see, I had led a Young Life club of more than 200 kids in a little living room while I was an undergrad at Stanford. And after I graduated from Princeton, I became the youth pastor of Park Boulevard Church in Oakland. And uh, I started a Young Life club at Oakland High. I was the only white guy leading an all-black club in the country. <laughs> I didn't have the rhythm or the music, but we had great music. But you know how I built relationships with them? I played poker with them at lunch. They all played poker. And they loved that I was such a loser. It built relationships. <laughs> I was confident as a dad because I knew kids and I knew how to relate to kids. But John was first born. And true to form, he was strong-willed. In fact, John is one of the most strong-willed people I have ever met in my life. He was also tender-hearted and kind. Every night as a little boy, he would say goodnight to every one of his 25 or so stuffed animals. And he would explain to each one why they would not be able to sleep with him in bed tonight, but soon their time would come because only two could sleep at a time with him in his bed. And I remember, as if it was last night, standing outside the door, secretly eavesdropping on this and admiring what a tender heart my little boy had. Those years in Denver were just plain fun packed with wonderful memories for us. Life was good. But the high school years were ahead. When I came to pastor this church, John was in the seventh grade, Jenny the fifth. And so what happened is moving here yanked them out of their network of friendships in Denver. And at that stage in his life, junior high, John's drive was to be popular and accepted, of course. And it was hard, though, to break into the tight cliques of kids in Salinas. And so he started doing things, and I understood why. But by high school, his friends were less than thrilling to us. And his behavior was sliding south fast. Now, some of you have had compliant children... You do not understand what it's like to have a strong-willed, stubborn child, but many of you do. It's hard going. James Dobson had one, and he wrote a book about his experience called The Strong-Willed Child and about his own frustration of having influence over this son of his. And his advice essentially was this, hold on for the ride, God is not done yet. The story is not yet over. And that's what we did. We just held on. One day I was working in my rose garden and I had roofers up on our flat roof fixing, repairing it. And one of them from two stories up called down while I was clipping roses. Sir, what do you want 
us to do with these plants up here? I said, what plants? He said, well, sir, they look like marijuana plants. And there's about 15 or 20 of them up here. What would you like us to do? I said, bring them down and destroy them except two. I want two. So I took two of them and I put them in the room next to our dining room table. And that night when John came to dinner, we were having conversation. I said, John, I hear you're really into gardening lately. How's it going? And John said, what do you mean gardening? And I got up and went around the corner and brought these two plants in this gardening. And he freaked out. He said, dad, these are big windows here. Hide those things before somebody sees them. So I took them around the corner and we had a little talk. And John told me that he was not smoking weed. He was selling it and making big money to the kids at high school. I believed him. Because John was an athlete. He wouldn't even take an aspirin. He was lifting weights and health crazy and all of that. He'd never smoke weed. But he was always trying to make money. <laughs> and he's always coming up with schemes. And as I listened to him, I thought, this is the most creative money-making scheme yet. And in a nanosecond, as I was listening, I imagined him climbing out his window hoisting himself up on the flat roof and watering each one of those plants every night. That took determination. I said to myself, John is going to be the next Bill Gates and rich. He's going to do great. I was laughing inside. I didn't tell him any of this. I just said, let's have a little session on how to make money without going to jail. And then I grounded in him until Jesus comes again. <laughs> we needed the wisdom of Solomon as parents, which often we did not have. And this once confident youth pastor with kids had failures, lots of failures. In this heat of battle for influence over our son's life, we were battling the influence of culture and his friends. And it was hard going. But then as if God flipped the light switch, John turned around at the University of Oregon. He majored in journalism. It's a tough major and he did very well. And he was at the top of his class in ROTC he was the commanding officer's favorite recruit. And when he was commissioned as second lieutenant, it was a proud and happy day. His future looked bright. And then the disease of paranoia, schizophrenia struck. I showed you in the film last week of John Nash, the brilliant mathematician at MIT who won the Nobel Prize for his formulations. I showed you what it was like in that film that depicted these voices that no one else can see and the people hallucinating and seeing people no one else that aren't really real, mocking you and making fun of you and driving you to kill yourself. Most people know little or nothing 
about mental illness. You can't imagine it, what it's really like, and it's 24-7 with no relief. Being terrorized, it's like nothing any of you have ever experienced, and I didn't understand it until I began to really study it and try to stand in his shoes. For nine years, John battled the voices. And one night the voices won out and he hung himself. You know, most people, because they don't know very much about mental illness, they see someone who's mentally ill or bipolar, and our attitude is, just snap out of it. Come on, get over it. We don't say that with someone with cancer. But with the disease of mental illness, well, get over it. But you can't. Most of them end up taking their own life. And our life turned to ashes. Grief, whether it is the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, being treated unjustly at work, or a spouse leaving us for someone else, whatever the grief... It takes time. You cannot hurry grief, even though most people want you to hurry up and get over with it because they're uncomfortable with it. Grief is like riding a roller coaster. Just when you think you're healed, something reminds you of your loss, and down you go again, up and down, up and down, with sadness and grief and guilt. I was on a sabbatical at Oxford one summer, a couple of years after his death, and I was in a history seminar with about 10 people, and the prof made an illegal turn in his lecture off the subject, and suddenly, suddenly was discussing what it was like to be hung for a crime in the Middle Ages before the gallows with the trap door was invented in the 18th century. And the improvement of the gallows was it snapped the neck and the death was immediate. But before that, he went into a lengthy discussion of the, the condemned being stood on a cart with the noose around his neck and the oxen driven out, pulling the cart out from underneath his feet and the family and friends would just hope for a quick death and not slow strangulation. Flashback. And I imagine what it was night that, like that night, and I just hoped it was quick. I had to get up and while the prof was still talking and leave, and the rest of the day, I struggled with my guilt that I didn't find a cure for paranoia, schizophrenia for my son. That I wasn't there that night to stand at the door and to stop him from doing this. I imagine that night I was overwhelmed with guilt. And the rest of the day I beat myself up for my failures. What I should have done, could have done as a dad. And on the screen is a partial list of the guilt. It's my guilt was much longer, but if you, I listed my guilt that day. I didn't find a cure. I didn't stop his suicide. I had been impatient at times. 
Too often I was in a hurry. Sometimes I nagged him. Should have spent more time with him. I knew all the promises that God forgives me as I confess my sin. So I would pray and I would believe God had forgiven me. He would wash my slate clean. And so my slate would be washed clean by God. But within 20 minutes, let me show you what happened. <laughs> the devil would help me rewrite the list as fresh as ever and he just laughed I would confess again and again and again and again the list would be retyped for months I was losing the battle to forgive myself Jeremiah 31 verse 34 said, God remembers our sins no more, but I remembered. Surely someone here knows what that is like. And you are struggling, you've confessed it again and again, but you keep remembering. I eventually learned to find peace with my past. It took a lot of time. And I'd like to share with you what I learned. The first thing I learned was I stopped doing all the talking and let God get a few words in. I'm serious. For months, I did all the talking in my prayers. When I took the Lord's Supper like this morning, I did all the talking. I just filled it with the confession. And God couldn't get a word in edgewise. And then after months, one day, as I was confessing the same list, I took a breath and God got a word in. This really is what happened. He said to me, Mike, this is kind of embarrassing, but he said, Mike, your pride is blocking your healing. And I said, my pride? Yes, you are so proud. You are embarrassed to admit that you weren't a perfect parent. You are too proud to admit that you needed me to die on the cross for you. Because you're just like everyone else, a sinner in need of huge grace and forgiveness. You're a sinful man, Mike, but I love you anyway, totally. So love yourself, even though you have failures. Stop being embarrassed by your failures. That was the key line. I was embarrassed by my failures. And that was my pride. That was not the grace of God speaking. Stop being embarrassed by your failures. You're a normal person in need of enormous grace from me. Now give grace to yourself because I've given it to you. I can remember the voice of God coming through as if it was an hour ago. Interrupting me. That's honestly what happened. And I started to let God speak his word to me and I did that by reading scripture, like 1 John 1, 8, that says, if anyone has not sinned, they're a liar and they deceive themselves. Well, I said, yes, I've sinned. Don't be embarrassed about it. Just admit it that you're a normal human being. I had to humbly stop being ashamed of being a sinful man in need of mercy. That's called being human. That's what human, human means. 
And then one day, God opened my eyes to our scripture that I read to you this morning in Colossians 3, verse 12. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And forgive yourself, in parentheses, as the Lord forgave you. I was just studying for a sermon, and I, as I studied the Greek text, I realized it's that reflexive pronoun. It's not just forgive others, it's reflecting back on you. Ref forgive yourself. It's a commandment. And I finally realized one of my sins is I'm not forgiving myself. It's a sin against God. And boy, that gave me permission. Up until then, I wouldn't give myself permission because I thought, you know, somehow I need to pay through my own torture for my sins against my son. But that gave me permission to forgive myself. And I started interrupting my endless rehearsal of failures and guilt. And I started telling my guilt where to get off. You have to do that. Tell your guilt where to get off with the word of God. Actually, Colossians is using, when it uses the reflexive pronoun, it's covering the whole, the whole uh, verse. Have compassion on yourself as a dad and mother. You have compassion on yourself as a mistake doer. Show yourself some kindness. Be more gentle with yourself when you have a bad day as a parent. Isn't that, that's just so liberating. I was incredibly hard on myself because when you love deeply, you're all, you are hard on yourself when you hurt the other person. I thought somehow I could make up for my failures by being hard on myself. But I realized God was commanding me to be gentle with myself and to rejoin the human race. That's a new idea. And it was the beginning of being able to forgive myself. And I'm sure there's someone here who has been very hard on yourself, maybe even this week. Anything but gentle and compassionate. You just beat yourself up over some failure. Take this verse and put it on your mirror and read it and live it. Now to be gentle on yourself and to forgive yourself does not mean to make excuses or to be in denial about bad behavior. It simply means that you're human. Receive grace. Let yourself be forgiven and move on. The best thing I did was let God get a word in. And so I started praying God's word. God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from me. So I would pray, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed Mike's sins against, and failures against his son and daughter. I would put my name in the verse. You see, this is why I keep urging everyone to get in one of our small groups, whether it's a women's small group or the couples and men's groups, where I write the discussion questions. You don't have to know the Bible. You can get in there and start to learn the Bible. And I, I write quotes from sermons like this and 
other things that help people discuss more in depth what I'm talking about today. That's how people grow. I guarantee you, you will not win the battles in your life if you're going it alone as a Christian. The Christian life is the group life. And the best thing you could do for as a parent or in a marriage or just for your friends is to get into one of these groups today out there in the lobby. Secondly, don't waste your guilt and regrets. Don't waste your guilt and regrets. Last week I said to you that while I was studying at Oxford two summers ago on a sabbatical, I read this terrific book about Horace, the Roman poet. When I got home, Susie laughed. She says, nobody knows about Horace and they don't even want to read him. So what are you talking about? Well, everybody's heard Carpe Diem pretty much. He's the guy who wrote that. And you usually hear people say carpe diem means seize the day. They're wrong. That idea has been popularized, but it's wrong. And while I was at Oxford studying this, I found out that Latin scholars say, no, that's not the translation. The translation is taste the day. That's a big difference. Seize the day is the Donald Trump mentality. That's not Horace's meaning here. Horace, I had to laugh, wrote an ode that is a short poem to wine, the pleasures of wine. In it, he talks about sipping wine slowly to savor its taste. Of course, you don't gulp a glass of wine down. You taste the wine, you savor it. Taste the day. Experience things and people deeply. And that's exactly what I did not do when I came to Salinas. The church was understaffed, and so I worked longer and longer hours to do the things needed to grow the church and to change the church. We grew from about 300 in worship to become a large and complex church. And a large and complex church with still a small staff means I just worked harder and harder to do the things that needed to be done that we couldn't afford to hire staff for. So even when I was home, I knew better than this. Even when I was home, I wasn't there. My mind was still thinking about ministry. I coached John's teams and hardly ever missed one of Jenny's games, but I wasn't really there. There is this great book called In Praise of Slowness. It's written by a rebel against speed. <laughs> In fact, he's a member. I didn't even know this society existed. He's a member of the Society for the Deceleration of Time. <laughs> I had to laugh. <laughs> because I'm speeding up all the time. <clears throat> Turns out that Mozart and Mahler scolded musicians for playing their compositions too fast. Mozart famously said, the curse of virtuosos is showing off with speed playing. If I could do parenting over, I would slow down. 
and I would listen more and I would talk less. I would slow down because listening takes time, especially with children who meander across the landscape of thought especially with the nightly prayers with your little children. Have you ever felt like, hurry up, as they pray endlessly for creation? Kids just take time to listen to. Because you never know when a child is going to say something really important. It's not like you can take a seven-year-old and sit him down, now let's have some quality time. Tell me really what's going on in your life. No, that just happens along the way. And it takes time. Listening is how you stand in their shoes and communicate. Listening is the hard work of love. It takes time and can't be hurried. I wish I'd have known that. It's one of my regrets. Simon and Garfunkel had a mega hit in the song, The Sounds of Silence. They sang people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening. My words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. It was a deep critique that a world full of words really was silent because no one was hearing anything. People were only interested in their own story and not the story of what other people were going through. You know, I still find that today. People are really not interested in your story and don't have that much time to listen to that. We live in a world full of silence because very few people are listening. Listening is the hard work of love. And I made up my mind to become a good listener after John's death, to taste the day with Susie and Jenny and now with Tegan, my granddaughter. And I have worked very hard at becoming a good listener and saying very little. That's why you've heard me in the last few years have listening as a part of so many sermons because it's so important to me. I will not waste my regrets. What about you? Honestly, what regrets do you have that you should not waste but put off the old way and put on a new way? What are your regrets? Third, I finally was able to forgive myself because heaven is where everything sad becomes untrue. C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford professor, lost his wife to cancer, and he said it was like having his leg amputated. He said people would say, aren't you over this yet? And he said, you know, when you get your leg amputated and you get fitted with a wooden leg, you can walk again. But it's with a limp the rest of your life. You never really get over the absence of the person you love so much. 
Everything reminds you of their absence. You walk with a limp. One of the most quoted parts of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is something Sam Ganji said to Gandalf. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue in heaven? That's the line. Is everything sad going to come untrue in heaven? Yes! Jesus said in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, and Jesus who sits on the throne said, I will make all things new. Everything sad comes on true in heaven. C.S. Lewis had a great insight. He said that when you die, you know if you're going to heaven, you'll start to hear riotous, deep laughter coming across the universe. That's when you'll know you're on the way to heaven. Because in heaven, it's characterized by laughter since everything sad has come untrue. That has meant so much to me. What this means is John is is now completely healed. And he has forgiven Susie and me because heaven is where everything sad becomes untrue. One of the best things I did after my son hung himself and I was struggling with regrets is I wrote him a letter. It just helped immensely to write out what I wished I could say to him. And I'll read just a couple of lines to you because the rest is so personal. John, there was trouble for you at school and trouble on the weekends. And I want you to know I was never embarrassed by you. One of the few things I did right was stand by you with the police and the principal and helped you have second chances. In fact, I made so many visits to the principal's office, we got to be on a first name basis. But I ask your forgiveness for my sins against you. You see, I was so afraid of what was going to happen to you that I did not always react very well. I'm a different man now. I wish I'd been a different man then. Those were such hard years for us both. I wish I could live them over and be a better dad, but I can't. All I can do is look forward to heaven and being hugged by you and forgiven. When I close my eyes at night and pray, I can see your big smile waiting for me. Jesus promised that heaven is where everything sad comes untrue. I hope that encourages you. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for every person here who has grief, whatever it is, that the message would go deep into their mind and heart. And I pray for people 
for whom life has been smooth sailing, that they take to heart what I've said also because no one gets out of this life without sadness. I pray they would be able to rise from the ashes as well. Amen. Well, that was another practical message from Dr. Mike. If you live in our area, why not come to in-person worship at one of our three locations Sunday? Hearing Dr. Mike live is so much more powerful. So we hope you can come. <laughs>